Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, It has only been a week since our last Brussels Sprouts episode, but boy, what a week it has been. So much has changed since last Friday. Uh, We finally have a new president-elect, President-elect Biden. Uh, And one thing I think is really clear is that the next administration will really be a clear break with the previous administration. Uh, Policies are going to look very different. The tone, the rhetoric, the approaches are going to be entirely different. And so here at Brussels Sprouts, we want to spend the next couple of months talking with people to better understand what the direction of U.S. foreign policy is likely to be uh, and what the change of an administration will mean for the transatlantic community. And so today we're going to get that conversation started but we're not starting where many of our listeners might think we would start. We're not talking to members of the transition or people who are placed for next jobs. Um, But instead we're talking uh, to a group of students, uh, a group of high school students from Carmel High School in Indianapolis about their views and ideas about US foreign policy and where it should be headed on a future government. And I'll just say we first met this group and I will introduce them shortly Uh, because of a program we do here at the Center for a New American Security called Across the Pond in the Field, which is something we've been doing over the last couple of years, and it takes us outside of Washington, D.C., outside of the Beltway, to talk with Americans across the United States about their views about uh, of U.S. foreign policy, America's place in the world, and where transatlantic relations fit into all of that. And so we had a conversation with this group about a week ago and were just blown away by their insights uh, and their ideas. Uh, And so we thought it would be appropriate to start kind of a series of episodes looking at the future of US foreign policy under the next administration with this group, uh, the next generation, uh, and injecting some new ideas uh, into the foreign policy debate. Welcome to all of you. We have four students with us today. Again, they are all Roe Kappa Honors students from Carmel High School. So we're joined by Zoe Edwards, Sarah Conrad, Uredo Agata, and Logan Talai. So welcome to all of you. We're so excited. This is, is, we've never done anything like this. um, So we're really, really excited to have you join us. So we can go ahead and I'm going to throw a question over to you and that'll be the beginning of our discussion. But as we talked about with all of your classmates, we had a fantastic discussion about uh, threats and challenges to U.S. national security. And so would love to hear from all of you what you are most concerned about. What's top of mind? What do you all see as the biggest challenges to U.S. national security? When what do you think are the issues that our next government will need to prioritize? Well, first of all, thank you so much, both of you, for having us here. I know we're all super excited to be involved. Um, I know that, like, obviously, thinking about national security, the first question is, what will the next administration have to deal with? But to me personally, and this isn't even an issue that really came to mind for most Americans even a week ago, um, but for me, the biggest concern is not the next administration, but how we get there. And a lot of the rhetoric that's being thrown around in America right now about um, fraudulent elections and voter suppression and are the parties trying to cover it up where there is none? Are they baselessly accusing others of supporting fraudulent voting? And I think that the thing with democracy is it only exists as long as everyone believes in it and everyone trusts that it's it's all right, we'll get through it, we'll have a peaceful transition of power. Even if you might disagree with the next administration, 
you accept the fact that people voted for them and that that was the will of the people. And I think that in the long run for US national security, having so much rhetoric and opening the door to political rhetoric about um, whether or not the elections were um, fraudulent or not um, can be really dangerous in the long run. It opens the door to more dangerous political groups to potentially try and rig our elections, make arguments about um, the actual election being fraudulent. It's a thing that you see a lot in countries that experience coups frequently. And that's something that I feel like the US has always tried to stay away from that it could verge into if we continue with this line of thought and this line of argument. You raised such a good point. So maybe let's stick here for a second before we move on to other threats and challenges and maybe just to hear from all of you how you are, I mean, how are you, how you're feeling in this period. Um, and and a, I think it's such an important point. I know in our discussion before we talked about threats emanating from home, but just to hear from you all how you're thinking about what's happening with our democracy. We can talk about how the election fits into that disinformation. Um, but, you know, how are you, um, reacting or responding to what's happening around you uh, and, and, and where do you see this headed and what do you think it means for our democracy? How concerned are you all? Thank you so much, Zoe. I definitely agree with a lot of the points you made. And as a, my name is Reda, and as a senior here in Indiana, it's just been interesting to watch and to see how people come about to different positions and different viewings of how things went on and so it's like Zoe said I think there is definitely a bit of a scary rhetoric like she said of this things are fraudulent we can't trust the we can't trust the other side like we can't trust these other people like if this person doesn't agree with me then there's no way I can even trust that they have they have the good of the country in their hearts and things like that and so that can make things very tense and it makes it feel almost like you can't talk to some people or you can't relate to some people because you know that if they found out that you had held this belief or maybe you, you thought of just a little bit different about this certain issue, you'd feel almost ousted or something like that. And so I feel that is very dangerous. And it's something that I think is enhanced by the technological state we are in, like with how technology is. It's very easy to get stuck in echo chambers of the same people, of similar people sharing similar ideas. And then you get so strong and you feel so comforted by those people who are like, oh, they agree with me. Of course people see what I'm seeing. Like people clearly see and understand the world the way I do. And so then to try and reach out across other people who them, they themselves are also wrapped in those areas and those people who also agree with them. It's very hard for people to see across the aisle. I feel as if We've always had a bipartisan government, even though George Washington warned against it. But I feel as if even more so now, it feels so tense and it feels so almost so hard to bridge that gap. And I feel as if that's a bit worrying. Yeah, Sarah, I want to turn it over to you. And I mean, as if in Logan and Sarah, if you want to comment too on I mean, how concerned you are about U.S. democracy or whether you think, I mean, as America, one of the oldest kind of most robust democracies, are we well positioned to weather this or do you, are you you know, genuinely concerned at this point with all of the polarization. Um, and I mean, maybe even a recognition that institutions are really only as strong as the norms and the people in it. Do you, do you think they're at risk? How are, how are you all thinking about that and feeling about the state of our democracy currently? Used to be a congenital optimist because I don't want to ever reject the notion that the future cannot get better. And right now, I think definitely is a time that is fraught with lots of tension, regardless of where you stand politically. I feel as if it's a very divisive time. And like Erodo said, exactly, people get stuck in echo chambers and they think people only 
think one way. And then when they realize that someone thinks another way or they don't share the same beliefs as them, they tend to demonize them because of thinking, well, I know I'm right. I support my beliefs so wholeheartedly. How could you think that? And they go and they slander them. And I think it's just an incredibly polarizing time. However, America has had more polarizing times. We've had a civil war. Our country has literally split in half before. I don't feel like we're at that point. And I definitely feel as if there is hope for the future. We can work across the aisles. And ultimately, America prides itself so much on being a democracy. I believe we'll pull through because America fundamentally is about that belief in the voice of the people having popular sovereignty. And I think even though right now is fraught, I have hope for the future that there is chance for bipartisan bills to pass in Congress. I don't think our democracy is going anywhere. Logan, you want to add on there? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I think you guys brought up some, you know, excellent points. And I feel like, you know, at the moment, our you know, democracy is, you know, being attempted by some to be undermined um, and to be questioned. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, very concerning. But I think a, a large part of that is kind of the division of media platforms in part, just because, you know, with everything being digital now, uh, there's kind of not a common narrative or a common media platform that everyone's reading, kind of like, you know, unlike in the past where, you know, everyone would you know, read a similar newspaper and you would be able to hear both sides of an issue. Now, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally, people are becoming ignorant to, you know, other people's perspectives. And I, I think that's a large part of what's kind of causing this, you know, on some sides to question you know, the legitimacy of this election, even though when there is no, you know, clear evidence that that is the case. I, I think, you know, a large part of that stems from not being able to hear other, other people's perspectives. And, you know, when it comes to mind, like something kind of like that common, com common platform, the only thing that comes to mind for me would be like the presidential debates where you're really able to hear both sides in a kind of fair manner where both sides can be heard equally. And, you know, other than that, when I'm thinking about it, that's the only thing that's Kind of like that newspaper platform in the past where you're able to see both perspectives and you know uh, all at once so that, that's kind of you know a concern of mine and because it's trending more towards you know those digital platforms and that division i think that's something that we'll have to kind of take note of if we're to uh, reunite as a country well, that's all very uh, great. Those your uh, presentations or interventions were excellent, and I think I I think I and certainly a lot of people I know here in Washington would agree with what you were saying. But let me ask you: when uh, in a time like this, uh, fraught as you all were saying, um, and it's not clear, uh, you know, uh, the information stream is unclear. It's you don't know where to go for uh, what you think is the is is the truth, if you will. Uh, and trust is at a as, is at a premium. Where do you go to get your news? Where do you go if there's confusion out there and you kind of want to figure out what's really the case in a, on a particular issue? What is there? Is what? what where do you guys go uh, to get your information? Uh, as many places as I can. Um, I think the best example, honestly, was watching the the votes come in. Um, and like seeing the different states change colors on the night of the election and even like the following days is to really get a clear picture of what was actually going on. You had to go to several sites because almost every site would have one state that was a little bit different or would have one vote called in a single state. So it's not necessarily that all of our media platforms are projecting completely different things on every story, but there are little details and different slants put on it that um, different slants put on it that can alter the story and that can sway the audience one way or another. So I 
I'm I, like, I get email chains from the New York Times and the LA Times. I watch my local news, but I'll also just, you know, I'll turn on Fox every once in a while. I'll go on CNN. I'll even, um, I'll go to Le Monde and Le Figaro because um, I speak French, so I can just read it. And I try and get like, what are, what internationally, what are people looking at this domestic issue and seeing? Because um, obviously those countries are still reporting on some of the major goings on in the US. So to be able to see, okay, from a completely or a relatively outside perspective, what are other countries looking at and seeing? Um, I think the only problem with that is it's easy as a relatively privileged person and also as a high school student that doesn't have to work, I have the time to go and do that to say, oh, you just have to go look at all these different platforms. But I also recognize that for the average American, it's not feasible to spend all of that time investigating every issue to that level of detail or to, you know, most Americans probably don't speak a second, that second language that they can use to reach out to some international platforms. So um, I think the biggest like gap is maybe a, maybe a platform where like different perspectives can really come together and share those. Um, the U.S. used to have like a fairness doctrine for any if this goes on for anyone that is an American that said that um, news outlets had to present both sides of an issue. And I'm not saying to necessarily bring that back, but I do think a platform that engages in a similar policy would be worthwhile so that the average American who doesn't have the time to explore platform after platform can still understand from a relatively unbiased point of view both sides of an issue. I definitely agree with Zoe on there being a, a consuming a variety of sources, but I take a much more relaxed role, um, role, way. I do that in a much more relaxed way. But one thing, I'm not really the biggest fan of the 24-hour news cycle, and so I do not watch much news. And if I am going to watch news, I turn on the PBS News Hour. That's the news that I feel as if is the is news that when I approach it, it does, I approach it in a sense that here I'm here to get information, and I don't feel any distinct trying someone trying to sway me one way or the other. But my parents have always been a big fan and big proponent, proponents of learning. And so we received the National Geographic and the Wall Street Journal for as long as I remember. And it's not necessarily that I sit down and read through these, but I do, I glance at the at the headlines. My parents sometimes will point out an article they think I should read. And it's not necessarily only like political things. Like I like just learning about what people are doing. Like there's sometimes they talk about fashion, they talk about business, so just keep it abreast of those things. I listen to various podcasts, and these podcasts don't necessarily have to do anything to do with policy, but I'm just hearing other people talk and other people express their ideas and things like that. And like with YouTube and things like that, I try and make it a mode of mind that the creators that I watch are people who hold, who live different lives and hold different views than me. And not necessarily in that they were trying to convert me to these views or anything like that, but just to see the wide breadth of information that you can have. Like, so you can do it a very passive way. Like it's not necessarily that you have to sit down and read through the newspaper every day or watch this news channel, but just be aware of the things you're taking in, whether it's the books, the movies, the TV shows, YouTube, Instagram, that you have the power to change that algorithm to fit what you want to see. And but but you, to do that, you actually have to actively search out distinct views and distinct personalities, or just people who maybe live in a, in a different state than you. Like something as simple as that can really go a long way to ch- like having your information feed not be one that's so focused from one side of of a of the spectrum or something like that. Sarah, if you want to come in, you can, but let me add in one question and then you can kind of respond how you want. But for all of you to think about too, 
I mean, the other thing that there, the other part of this story too, so there's certainly enough that's going on domestically, and we've been hearing a lot about kind of domestic sources of misinformation, disinformation, but in our community too, there's certainly then the, the foreign interference and outside actors, Russia, China, Iran, who are also interfering historically, obviously in the 2016 election, in the midterm elections, and in the run-up to this election. How do you think about that part of the mix? Is that something that is equally as important that we need to address? Um, how, how do you think about kind of these different threats to the information space and, and how, you know, how we need to, how we protect the information environment in the United States? Um, so for me, kind of like regarding those threats, you know, kind of uh, the misinformation, especially from, you know, foreign actors in that sense, I, I, I feel like a lot of times it's targeted towards more, you know, social media and platforms like that. And I, I try to take the information that I see on those kinds of platforms lightly and, you know, mainly focus my, you know, what is, what is this? Is this true? And I, I look at other platforms that I know are established, you know, like I like to read the New York Times and the Atlantic and things like that, where I know I'm going to get factual information. And, you know, just because the, like the news cycle is so fast and information spreads so quickly, I try to take what I first see, you know, a first headline, not that, not let that determine what I'm thinking. So, you know, I try to stay calm about whatever I'm seeing and kind of like Zoe was saying, you know, looking around on some other different you know, platforms and see kind of evaluate with your own filtering. Um, you know, is this, is this the accurate way to look at this particular problem or issue or, uh, you know, current event? So definitely trying to take it from multiple sources for that kind of more instantaneous news. And, you know, kind of like long form, you know, I, I'm a big fan of like the Daily New York Times podcast. So I try to listen to that every day. And that's kind of also an interesting way because it's, you know, looking more into the lives of other people. And I think that's also kind of an interesting way to, you know, approach, you know, learning about like these kinds of news things that we're talking about. Just one quick follow-up question to that. So how representative do you all think you are of your generation? So obviously you guys are, you're very interested in international politics, you're honor students in your high school. Um, you have bring a, an incredibly mature perspective to the way that you consume information. But when you kind of thinking about your friends and some of your other peer groups, do you think other people are similarly aware of the kind of challenges that are that exist in the information space? And one and and then kind of a follow up question to that is: to, Do you receive any kind of um, classes or, or instruction on how to consume information. So one of the things that people will talk about in Washington, D.C., as a way to push back on some of the misinformation, disinformation is, you know, these media literacy classes for adolescents and coming up. Are those things that you talk about in a school setting to make you better consumers of information? Or is that something that you still think is largely missing and maybe you guys given your interests and I think your incredible maturity, do it differently than the rest of your peer group. Um, oh, sorry, Sarah, I'll be fast. Um, I do remember receiving some instruction on like looking for misinformation, uh, specifically with regards to research, like making sure your sources are trustworthy back in like elementary and middle school. But in retrospect, it's so outdated and it's something that not only needs to be updated, but should really be continued into high school because it isn't until high school that most students, I feel, really start to look, start reading the news with a more critical eye. And that stuff is really prepared for like 
oh, here's a random website on the internet that someone wrote with a bunch of lies about the Revolutionary War. Like, you don't want to use that as your source for a paper. But there isn't the same level of preparation for when you're just informing yourself and you're trying to develop an informed opinion about something for not a school project. Um, how can you make sure those sources are trustworthy? And that's kind of a level of it that I don't think we ever really got into in school. Personally, I'd say I'm probably not the most, I don't know that any of us are really the most like representative in that we're all um, very interested in like learning more about current events. And I know a lot of people in my school that just don't care that much about, about politics specifically, but even just in keeping up with like the wider international current events. Thailand and Zoe, I definitely don't think we are representative. Um, all of us are very much hardcore social studies kids, history buffs, you name it, that's us to a T. Uh, most of us are peer tutors for a social studies program. We love this kind of stuff. We adore it. Most people our age, I don't think they're generally that interested in it, is that we are definitely are a self-selecting group, is that we adore this. That's why we love it. And that most people don't. Most people don't actively live their lives seeking out this type of information or this sort of engagement. And then also in terms of evaluating bias, I have been fortunate enough in high school, uh, maybe some of the other kids have, but I'm not aware of everyone's course schedules that they took. Our school is very, we're lucky enough to have a school that gives us wonderful course offerings. I was privileged enough to take AP seminar. And one of the first activities our teacher actually had us do was she laid out a series of six articles all about similar subjects and she redacted the source title and had us try to rank them in terms of accuracy. And then at the end, she showed us how wrong we were because we all played off of our own internal biases and we realized that several of them actually had a lot of misleading information. That was really eye-opening is that that class actually has taught me to look very critically at what I do. She taught us to look at headlines and think, what is this headline trying to make me feel? Is it trying to provoke outrage? Is it trying to make me sympathize with a group of people? And just in terms of evaluating bias, that class I've been fortunate enough to take, I got to take that in high school. So I think that our schools are trying to do a good job, but not every course does that necessarily necessarily because not every course focuses on research. If you're, you know, in your English class, chances are you're probably not doing research. You're mainly just reading a book, writing a book report. Is that you're only getting like what, like 200 page novel? You know, you're not getting current events information from that. So, you know, uh, a lot of the Brussels sprouts listeners uh, are in Europe, uh, all across Europe. And, uh, and I'm sure they're listening to this with great interest to see what the future American leaders are going to be like. So, um, let me ask you, um, I guess, two things, really. Uh, number one, uh, as you look at Europe now and you, and you look at all of our allies and partners that are there, um, who do you look towards in terms of leadership or uh, policies that you think Europe uh, really, you know, uh, has Europe on a good trajectory, a particular policy or so that they've embarked upon? But individual leaders, individual nations, when you look at Europe, um, which countries do you do you really look at and you that you put a lot of stock into in terms of leading uh, our friends and allies across the, 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 the pond there? That's number one. And number two is um, uh, if you what, what message would you give to them uh, knowing that you're the future leaders, you're on the trajectory going up, they're already established, they might be a, a, a bit older than you, you all starting their careers. Uh, what message do you have for those young Europeans who are listening to this in terms of how you all look at Europe uh, and look at them and 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 our partnership? So it's a two, this is a two part question. Zoe, you look like you're you're getting ready to answer. 
Yes. Um, well, starting with the second part, um, I've been lucky enough to participate in two exchange programs in the summer. One uh, I did in person in France for six weeks, and one I was supposed to do in person in Russia for six weeks, but um, COVID happened. But I was still able to like correspond with some Russian teams and like kind of get to know them and talk to them about their view of the U.S. And honestly, what I've taken away from both of those experiences, obviously, France and Russia, very different countries, but is that especially in the digital age, I think that um, young people across the world, but especially like across America and Europe have so much more in common than we have different um, and that we have apart. Everyone, like, I feel like we all and we enjoy similar music. We're just on the up and getting into politics more so, I think, now that social media makes it more accessible for young people. Um, but yeah, I feel the, the, although there are problems with the constant barrage of information with social media and the 24 hour news cycle and constantly like being bombarded with information about the world from our phones, one nice thing about it is that I did feel really connected to the people I met on both of those experiences. And they helped me realize that we're all really very similar. So that would be my message is we're all like at, at its core, we're, we all enjoy family and we all have national pride personally, but we're also all curious about the world around us. Um, and we all enjoy music and art. And we're just, I think that I look forward to seeing what Europe brings to the table, just as I look forward to seeing what America brings to the table in the future. I'm going to tag off of Zoe here, and I, I'm going to answer the first question. So I think in terms of leadership, just because we're biased Americans, is we probably are always going to look to Great Britain, and we're always going to look to France, because they've been our traditional allies when you look at history, and when you look at modern days, they're, they're our best friends in terms of a global perspective. Is, you know, when we think of France, we think of Great Britain, we're like, oh yes, like those are our allies. We have warm and fuzzy feelings towards them, but also to the younger Europeans over there who are listening to this, I think in general, Americans have good opinions of Europe. We like Europe. We want to be friends with those of you across the Atlantic. We don't want to be your enemy. We have common goals. We have common values. We have common beliefs. And I think at the end of the day is that it's not an adversarial relationship at all, is that Americans tend to get a bit of a reputation. We're a bit notorious for being self-centered and individualistic in terms of like foreign perception, but we definitely want to work with Europe is we don't want to antagonize you at all, is that we look at you and we see a potential friend, we see a potential ally. I have an interesting perspective on these questions, things like that. So my family is originally from Nigeria and I have family, I was actually born in England and I have um, my dad's older brother and his family lives there. And then one of his other brothers and family lives in Australia. And so a lot of times some of the information I get, like, you know, we have a family group chat that has people on three different continents on it. Four different continents had a cop. And so sometimes like so it's very interesting some of the perspective of things like that, or like when I'm talking to different cousins and like the view of America. And it's a very interesting one. And at times I almost feel as if they're laughing at us at times and I feel and I can get that and like you know because America you look at us you see you see some of the decisions we've made and some of the actions we've taken you you just you question but anytime you feel as if someone's laughing at you and you're not laughing with them it doesn't necessarily feel good so I feel as if a lot of times like Americans definitely like you know we have that stereotype of being you know too smiley too energetic but at the bottom line like Americans look at the world like they don't see 
not that they don't see obstacles, but there is this sense of optimism a lot of the times. And so when we hear like, you know, people go abroad or like they hear different stories and like, oh, they see, they think we're annoying, things like that. Or like, oh, they're always saying hi. And you hear those, those stories. On one hand, like they, they're not that big of a deal because, you know, each individual is different. You should treat each individual that you meet as a new person and not like put on your stereotypes upon them. But at the same time, it gives us a sense that we're almost fighting a little bit to gain your respect and things like that. And so this is a weird experience maybe just a personal thing that I feel sometimes, but, but at times almost feels as if like, oh, America, like, of course, America, we're going to talk about her. You know, she's been important in history, important in these wars and like things like that. But like America now is like not, not as good as she used to be. And in some senses, maybe that's true, but there's definitely a sense of just almost putting up the times with America. And from that, that almost makes us come from it a little bit like from a more antagonized point of view and that can make it harder sometimes to talk and, and like just to relate with one another but I will say like going back to the different like sources I have internationally like people are still able like Zoe and Sarah are saying like to come together and talk and things like that like to be able to relate with like my cousins all over the world and the friends and things like that so I definitely feel as if that there's a sense of community a global community but at times that America is sometimes a laughing stock and maybe for good reason, but when someone's laughing at you, it never really feels good. Well, let me add a little twist in here and Logan, we can come to you, but and hear from everyone because I think there is very much a debate still in the United States about what America's role in the world should be and whether or not we need to continue to kind of be out there leading, advocating for democracy and human rights, playing kind of an active role on the global stage on the one hand, or whether or not all of these domestic challenges, which is where our conversation started. We have so many challenges at home now we're layering on COVID. We have threats to democracy, economic challenges, racial injustice, all of these things that we talked about in our last session would suggest maybe we need to kind of hunker down and focus a little bit more inward on addressing those challenges. Where do you think your generation sees you know, where the U.S. role in the world? Do, where, where, do you think that people still think that the United States needs to be out there leading, or do you think there's more kind of support uh, or urgency to, to focus inward and address these challenges? Um, so, you know, I guess, uh, like, kind of before I kind of focus on that, you know, second question you proposed, I, I think as far as, like, looking to Europe for leadership, I, I think, you know, we can take a lot of inspiration, um, you know, as a country from a number of different places. So kind of you had some of the Scandinavian countries for, you know, leadership in climate policy and others for leadership in health policy. And I, I think it's important to not just look at one particular area because, you know, all, all these different European countries have a different way of, you know, prioritizing these things. And I, I think, you know, taking some of those views from those different places, you kind of can allow for a more holistic approach, um, you know, on a domestic level. And, you know, I think as far as dressing, uh, those domestic issues that we're, you know, are very prevalent in the United States at the moment. I, 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 do, I guess I don't see why we don't need to, you know, do one or the other. I, I think we can, you know, re-engage on a global level while also kind of addressing those issues. So I, I think it's important, again, to kind of you know, not say one or the other, but uh, kind of re-engage on, you know, a domestic level and, you know, come together while also, you know, uh, reuniting with some of our allies across the pond. I definitely like to um, kind of bounce off of what Logan said. There's no reason why it can't be both. I mean, like if I personally, like maybe I'm, you know, really stressed with school, really going through it, just broke up with my boyfriend, all of these problems in my life. 
that doesn't mean that I turn away from my friends and European Europe's America's friend. And like, there's a lot, we have lots of allies all over the world, of course, but like, you know, there's a really long standing relationship there. And just because America maybe needs to take a minute and focus on getting over the metaphorical breakup that we've just had with the election and seeing how we can heal and dealing with a lot of the racial issues in our country, developing new climate policy, that doesn't mean that our friends, the European nations, can't be a part of that too. As Logan said, there's countries in Europe that we definitely should look to as leaders in climate policy specifically. So us creating domestic climate policy doesn't need to be separate from that. Your friends can help you improve individually and just so our allies can help us improve domestically as a country as well. I'm going to tag off of Zoe. And I think America, we, of course, we tend to see ourselves as like bastion of democracy. We think we're the ultimate form of it. And after World War II, we really took on that sort of watchdog role in the world of trying to support human rights and democracy wherever it tried to pop up. And I think nowadays there's been sort of a shift, especially maybe in the perception of our generation, is that we should be a little bit more isolationist. And rather than just America coming out guns a-blazing, you know, all on its own, it should be more cooperative with European leaders and other world leaders and try to lead together rather than just solely alone. And I also think America is trying to look inward because we have so many of our own issues obviously the world is always so convoluted and complex and it only grows more so every day is that we have our own abundance of issues so I think we're definitely taking a step backwards to look more at ourselves and reflect whereas we're also looking across the pod and saying okay we should work with you and that it shouldn't just be us alone is that we want to have support from other places little trying to um, say some things off of what Sarah said I think the hesitancy which America might be having with engaging with foreign things and things like that might not necessarily be a bad thing. I feel as if at times in American history, we've gone in gung-ho, we know exactly what we need to do. Like we've done, the, like we, we know what to do. And a lot of those, some of those things have been really horrible and really bad for the countries that we try to help. And so I feel as if being able to take a stance and say, we have this history, we have these tools, we have this knowledge, but us just coming in and saying, this is how things should go, isn't necessarily the best way to go. But that if we can say, let us come together and work together with the countries we want, to, we want to be allies with, the countries that we already have relationships with, and work together from your perspective as this is your country, and we're not trying to take over your country, to move toward a whole, a better globe as a whole. So I feel as if like that hesitancy, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like sometimes you need to take a minute before you make a decision and before you run headfirst into things. And I feel as if this generation, at least me personally, I I I find it hard talking for a generation when I'm only one person. So <laughs> me personally, I think that um, it's important that we're, we're being a little bit more critical about some of the decisions we've made in the past and the actions we've taken. And I think that could be a good thing, like to look back and say, okay, we did this for these reasons, but we might've said we did it for these reasons, but really we're doing it for this. And that was a cover up. And although maybe we got what we wanted out of it, it wasn't the best for whatever country we were in interacting with at the time. Being critical of those things and being able to say, okay, we might not have done this the best way, but we can learn from this and hopefully in the future do better. I think that's important. And I think that's a good thing. Okay, I wanna do a quick kind of speed round on a couple of questions to bring this home. So I wanna go back to the first question actually um, about biggest challenges and or threats to US national security. So we started with a conversation about the post-election period and threats to I think our information environment. But as you guys see it, what would you put kind of at, as your top three 
maybe setting that one aside, but what do you think are the most significant risks and challenges to US national security? What would be your top three? Um, for me, like top of the list in terms of things coming up, kind of like cyber warfare and like new technological attacks. Um, climate change is for sure up there, but also, and this is more of an internal thing, but a lot of like the US military and US national security um, processes like get a little outdated and are, they're pressured to maintain them because there are jobs related to them and they need to keep up that funding and maintain those jobs. And I think that allowing those programs to get out of date um, really poses a risk in the long run if there's ever a true international emergency that we need to respond to. Logan. And, um, you know, kind of tying into what Zoe just said about kind of um, letting things get out of date, I, I think, um, you know, from my perception, I, I feel like, you know, like cyber attacks are like a very you know, significant problem, especially to U.S. infrastructure, you know, kind of including like hospitals and power plants and things like that. Um, and kind of a lot of these facilities don't have those newer, you know, computer systems just because they themselves have longer lifespans and a lot of them haven't been updated to the extent that they should be. Uh, just because they're nearing that end of that, you know, effective lifespan. So, you know, that vulnerability to attack is really concerning. And, um, you know, another problem with that kind of, you know, cyber warfare element is it's not always directed, um, you know, from a specific country, you know, sometimes it's from smaller insurgent groups. So, you know, that can be harder to identify who is really the culprit behind that. And if, you know, those groups had government support. So I, I think combating that is a really big, you know, challenge that, uh, the U.S. is kind of going to face in the coming years, especially in terms of national security. I think for me, number one is going to be democratic decline when we look at China and what's happening currently in Hong Kong, and as well as Russia's encroachment on the Ukraine. It's very scary because, you know, when you think of democracy, democracy is wonderful, but it's very fragile. Like Zoe said, it only works as long as everyone believes in it. And if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. You know, it's that America, as much as we love being a democracy, we could be susceptible to that. And then number two is climate change. That's definitely, I think, a generational difference is that our generation as a whole, I believe, is very, very vocal and very passionate about climate change being on an international agenda as something we really need to tackle and dive deep on. And then for number three, I'm going to have to go with cybersecurity, cyber warfare concerns like Zoe and Logan. Rado? I definitely agree with all these points you guys have brought up. And um, maybe just one I'll throw in is the sense of radicalization that is happening, I feel, is in America. And I think also to some extent all across the world. And so just, I don't know how we're going to combat it, but being able to spot and hopefully help people see that move away from those radical groups and things like that to hopefully decrease the amount of domestic and international terrorism we see. I think that's definitely a threat to American security. Okay, and then my last question, Jim asked about what messages you would give to European leaders, but given that we've got a new president who's going to take office in January, what would be the messages that you would want to communicate to a new administration? What are the things that you hope that a new administration will tackle and address early on? I guess kind of tying into, you know, what we discussed a little bit earlier, kind of that re-engagement. Um, I, I think that's going to be something that's really important, kind of especially, you know, in the European sphere, um, just because, you know, as we've seen with the past, you know, administrations that have kind of turned away from, 
Europe. I, I think that's kind of in some senses, um, you know, might be starting to leave some sort of power vacuum in a sense. So, you know, you kind of have, you know, with the annexation of Crimea, you know, you have Russia kind of threatening the Eastern uh, portions of Europe. And then you also have China, on the other hand, um, kind of uh, expanding its, you know, Belt and Road Initiative. So I, I think some of those, you know, some of those elements really require uh, re-engagement um, from the United States on an international level. And, um, you know, kind of like what Areto mentioned earlier too, you know, it's not necessarily like, you know, invading anyone's sovereignty or anything, because that's really, you know, important, but it's more kind of focusing on those uh, global issues that can be uh, benefited from with a, you know, partnership. So kind of, again, looking at that climate policy and things like that, that are a global issue and, you know, humanitarian issues that need to be combated, not just from one country saying, you know, this is, this should be stopped, but, you know, a coalition of different uh, countries and groups is kind of necessary. So I guess, as far as, you know, addressing a new administration coming in, I, I think that re-engagement is something really important while also, you know, focusing on those big problems we have at home too. I would say my message is definitely very much, we are your friend, we are not your enemy, is that we adore NATO in this country, or at least I personally do. And I think many people also share that sentiment is that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is something that we find incredibly valuable. Is like, I've said it before, is we have common values, we have common beliefs as we look at Europe. And I don't think there should ever be an adversarial relationship with theirs. We don't wanna antagonize you. We don't wanna step on your toes. We very much want to cooperate and work towards a better and brighter future for everyone together. Is that America doesn't just wanna be on its own. It does wanna reach across the pond and it does wanna have those allies over there. For me, I would like to say both to America and to Europe to listen. I feel as if a lot of times and a lot of history, historically, a lot of voices have gone silenced and have gone unheard or ignored. And I feel as if in this past administration, there was a lot of this is what we believe and this is what it is and this is what it should be and we should continue to be this way. But I think that a lot of people, all of us honestly, benefit from listening and hearing out different perspectives and when people say they're hurt or this thing this bad thing has been happening to listen to that honestly you don't necessarily have to upend all you're doing but to give an ear to those people who are voicing these problems voicing these outcries and also to europe like we need to listen to you and we and you need to listen to us too so i feel as if just having open communication would go a long way to easing a lot of these tensions that we feel I have a just a short question. Uh, Andre has been very kind to me to let me sneak in at the very end to ask a real quick question. A lot of what you all have said over the past few minutes uh, is great, and it's a lot of what we we think you know here uh, in Washington and as we deal with NATO and that type of thing. But you live in a state that went for for Donald Trump, and, and I'm not getting political here, but I just was wondering, you know, I think in your state there are probably a lot of people who might not necessarily agree with a lot of what you've said. So my question for you is, as you've announced, as you have said these kinds of things, you know, maybe at over Thanksgiving or, you know, maybe at a you know somewhere or another, someone's parents, and you've said these kinds of things, like like uh, Sarah, you said that uh, we adore NATO. Um, have you gotten pushback from others saying, whoa, wait a minute, what do you mean adore NATO? We should be out of NATO. Did you get a feeling, a vibe there um, in your families and friends that maybe you were an outlier or, or, or frankly, no, a lot of people actually feel that way uh, and, uh, in Indiana. This isn't something that is, you know, something that where you feel like you're isolated and you're, you're a very small group saying that. 
If I'm being entirely honest, um, I don't think that most Americans are, when they're voting, at least, I don't think foreign policy isn't the first issue they're voting on. They're voting on economics. They're in the military. They're voting on maintaining military spending. They're voting on the things that, for the most part, that they feel imminently affect them. Now, if I asked my mom, she'd be like, of course I care about foreign policy. I consider it when I vote. And I'm like, yeah, mom, you're an outlier. Um, and I think that's that's the thing is if even if our opinions in terms of foreign policy aren't necessarily outliers, like I can't think of a single person that I that would be like, no, we need to cut ourselves off from Europe. Why are we still allies with Europe? I think for the most part, people support that. They might want to decrease some of our um, spending overseas, but they don't want to cut off our alliance or cut off completely from those groups. It's just that the candidate that they feel best aligns with their economic circumstances happens to want to do some very radical things in terms of foreign policy. Um, so I don't think that I would ever be called out as being an outlier, as being crazy for my opinions on foreign policy, on maintaining engagement globally. But I do think that Americans aren't aware enough of all the ways it can impact them. And as a result, they don't, that's not an issue they tend to vote on. Um, and that's probably why we currently have a president that is so heavily isolationist, not because Americans at large are, but because it so happened that the candidate they felt best aligned with them happened to have these radical views on foreign policy, but he came along with all the other opinions that they agreed with. I don't necessarily agree with those opinions, but I'd say that that's probably where most Americans are coming from. Logan, do you wanna to add to that? Yeah, I definitely agree with Zoe on the fact that people aren't necessarily voting for foreign policy. Like a lot of times people are going to do the action that is easiest for them. And if you live in an area where the whatever the predominant party is, like you've heard people saying like, oh, like some, some people can vote on the simple thing that my friend voted for this person. I'm going to vote for this person. Like very little thought can go into voting, which is an interesting thing, which I don't think necessarily is the best, but it is what it is. And so when you ask us like, oh, are our views outliers? Like it's very hard to gauge because so much of it is very cultural and very social. But one thing I will say is I worked the polls this last election and so many people were so excited and wanted to vote so much. Like I, there was this one lady who had been to a different polling place and they had gotten her information wrong there and she had come had to drive here and her English wasn't necessarily the best but like she took over an hour but she was so excited and she wanted to vote and so when I see that people are still willing to be engaged and to go out to the polls to go to multiple polling places because of wrong mission like and still want to cast that voice I, I feel optimism like what Sarah says and so maybe it might, maybe we need to look toward how people, why people vote, but I'm happy that people are wanting to vote and are at least wanting to voice their opinions and voice what they believe in. I never think that my foreign policy stance is going to be what's going to land me in political hot water when it comes to family debates. It's never going to be that. It's usually domestic issues, like Zoe said, is that people, I mean, people focus on themselves. You know, we are selfish creatures. And when people vote, they think, what is going to most immediately affect me? People don't think about what's happening across the Atlantic or the Pacific. They just think about what's happening here in this country and how does it affect me? And so when you vote for a candidate, you're looking at their domestic issues, usually in the U.S. How people vote. Of course, there are exceptions like Zoe's mom, but um, foreign policy really isn't a concern. So whenever whatever their candidate is espousing in regards to what they want to pursue, 
for foreign policy, the person tends to adopt that stance, whether or not they actually know enough to actually have an informed opinion on it. That tends to be what happens is people just adopt the stance of whoever they most align with because they see themselves as identifying with that candidate or that party. And I think, you know, kind of, um, you know, representing Indiana in that sense, you know, I think, um, you know, for me personally, I haven't lived here all that long. Um, so I've moved, you know, 10 times between five different states. So I've lived all over the place. But um, so in a sense of, you know, those family dinners that you kind of mentioned, and there's, I guess, not a tension, um, tension in that area for me personally. But I, I feel like, you know, in this area, I think there is some, you know, pushback because mainly because of a lack of understanding. So tying back to the you know, discussion of NATO that we were having, um, you know, in a sense when, you know, the United States kind of funds some of that defense spending, I think what people, you know, don't realize is it's not just, in, you know, another cell phone bill that needs to be paid. It's, you know, for the United States, it's really, in a sense, kind of some of that money will come back into the United States defense and industry. So I, I think that's, I think a lot of people aren't considering those nuances when they're, you know, looking at those international focuses, because they're just seeing, oh, this is something we're spending money on that doesn't directly impact us. And I think that direct impact, uh, kind of like you guys were mentioning, you know, with voting is really important to a lot of people. But um, I, I think that a lot of people fail to consider that a lot of this spending that we are doing abroad, uh, you know, makes its way back to the United States. Well, this has been really fantastic. I think we're kind of at time, um, but just to say thank you to all of you. You know, one of the things that I think was so, one of the interesting takeaways here is we started an answer to the question about threats to national security with a set of domestic issues. And I think that is resonating with a lot of folks in Washington that one of the things that needs to be top of the list in terms of protecting the United States and its interests abroad is that we have to get our own house in order. Um, that is going to be critical for pushing back on a lot of the things that you're talking about, but China, Russia, all of these things to kind of heal our own divisions, get our own democracy in order so that we can uh, compete with them from a position of strength. But I think the other thing that you all have said is that the United States can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can kind of take care of our domestic problems while also working especially on shared interests um, and shared challenges with European partners and other allies abroad, that we, we should be able to do both of those things. Um, so again, I mean, just really incredible um, insights and perspectives, and we're just very thankful for you taking the time after school uh, to share all of your ideas with us. So thank you, Zoe, Uredu, Logan, and Sarah. Um, this was really great, and we hope that we can maybe do this again at some point to check in and, and see how you all are thinking and feeling um, in, in, I don't know, in a couple months' time. Yeah, thank you all so much, and good luck in the coming days. Yes. Thank, you thank you so much for organizing this. It was really lovely.